Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. If you're of the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. I am Zach Crum, and joining me for today's episode is a familiar face here on the Fisheries Podcast. I'll be talking with podcast creator and host Nick Kramer about several projects he's been working on regarding blue and flathead catfish and common carp in the state of Kansas. Welcome, Nick. I'm excited to chat with you. Well, thank you, Zach. I guess it, it's good to have the roles reversed and be interviewed. I know Julie and Brett kind of interviewed me oh, a year or so ago when I, when I came back to the show, and uh, I guess it's good to get get back in the saddle and do this podcast thing again yeah absolutely it's cool to cool to kind of get back and and chat with you about some of the stuff it seems like you've been working on for the last year like seems like you've been pretty busy yeah yeah it's it's been pretty busy i i've i've always told myself i'd I'd like to get back into the podcast and then i'd sit down and think well when when would i do that (laughs) it's been pretty busy between work and and home life uh but i think i could squeeze out uh being on this interview today and uh i guess you and i will be kind of alternating our monthly episodes moving forward so uh people will begin to hear my voice on the podcast again soon so yeah yeah that's awesome so how long have you been working there uh in your position with with the state of kansas i've been working for kansas wildlife and parks for five and a half years um hired on as a district fisheries biologist and just in the past few months uh that my titles changed to area fisheries biologist, kind of a promotional opportunity. Uh, I've been tabbed as a regional habitat coordinator. Uh, so for in Kansas, we divide our 17 biologists up into three regions and uh, each one has roughly six biologists. And so they cr- create these promotional opportunities uh, with three coordinators in each region for habitat access and aquatic education. And I was fortunate enough to get the regional habitat coordinator. Um, still a pretty new position. Uh, it started right during our Persid Broodstock collection. And uh, April kind of flew by with Persid stockings. And then here we are in May. And so we haven't had any real formal actions on, on what those job duties. Uh, we haven't acted on any of those new responsibilities yet. But should be in the in the coming months in the summer having a meeting and coordinating habitat plans throughout the state so okay great so you have um i'm assuming like some different reservoirs and rivers and, and bodies of water that you're responsible for there um and then also kind of that statewide component of, of habitat now too yeah yep yeah so uh, i have uh six counties in northeast kansas uh it's kind of if people are familiar with kansas geology it's basically from Topeka up to the Nebraska border and over to the Kansas city metro area. Okay. So that's a good chunk of Northeast Kansas has roughly 15,000 acres of publicly accessible water. Uh, Most of it a federal reservoir, but then there are several city and state owned lakes uh, ranging from one to a hundred acres. Okay. 
cool. I guess I was driving through there over the summer when I was moving back to the East Coast, but that's that was the last time I was in Kansas. Yeah, I, I gave you a, a handful of spots to stop and camp and fish. Did you, did you check any of those out? I was not able to stop, unfortunately. Yeah, it was kind of a whirlwind going from all the parks in Utah and Colorado. And by the time we we got uh, a little bit east, we we're like, gosh, we just got to get home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a long yep. trip, though. But yeah, so I'm excited to talk about some of the different projects that you've been working on um it seems like lately so did you want to start by talking about the study you did on um blue catfish live well stress response yeah so in kansas i guess right after i started in kansas um the research staff was was generous and opened up a pool of money to the, the management biologist to ba- basically create and do their own research projects on the side and so I've taken advantage of that each of the, each of the years, each of the times it's been available since I started. Um, and this project was, was the second one of those I did. Um, it was kind of spurred by increasing complaints or questions about why Kansas doesn't have a catfish pass um, for tournament anglers. So in, in Kansas, we do have a black bass pass for bass tournaments. So anglers that fish a bass tournament in Kansas, they can buy a $5 pass it allows them to carry fish that are less than the length limit uh, in their live wells. So most of our reservoirs have special length limits on them, uh, like 18 or, uh, yeah, 18 would be a common one, 18 inch largemouth or smallmouth bass. Uh, so this black bass pass will allow tournament anglers to have fish still above the statewide 15, but less than that 18 inch minimum length limit. So they can carry smaller fish and they can also creel fish. So uh, they don't have to keep the first five fish they catch. They can thin out some of those smaller ones and replace them with bigger ones as the tournament goes on. Um, so then the catfish guys are starting to say, well, why can't we have a catfish pass? And um, as, as anybody that knows much about bass tournaments goes, there's a whole bunch of literature on on bass uh, and how they handle tournament-related stress. But there isn't very much on uh, catfish. Uh, if there is it, I haven't been able to find it on the internet. Um, so it's pretty thin or non-existent literature base out there for catfish stress related to tournaments. And so we, we set out to answer that question. Um, and unfortunately we were doing it right at COVID. So we weren't able to do it as thoroughly as we wanted with, uh, comparing lab to a portable blood, blood glucose meter, but, uh, we set out to, to do it anyway. And so I guess, First, we, we did a survey to determine how many of these uh, catfish anglers were from Kansas um, by sending a survey out to catfish tournament trails that frequent Kansas. Um, it was kind of a half-assed survey attempt. Uh, I'm not a human dimensions person, and uh, it wasn't originally in the, the proposal to do this survey. We just kind of threw it together. And um, so it's not the most uh, thorough thing, but we were able to get about two dozen responses back from catfish tournament anglers. Um, all of them had fished a tournament in Kansas. All of them were from Kansas and all of them were white males between 30 and 50 years old. Um, they fish about four tournaments in Kansas a year and they have five fish in their live wells for about six hours. And we also asked them a series of questions like figure out how big their live well was. Cause as we were going to move forward with this study to determine live well stress of blue catfish, uh, we wanted to, uh, I guess, figure out what size live wells people had on their boats. And uh, either people use the same me- measuring 
tapes that they use to measure their fish or their they they really have big boxes of water but uh on average they said they had live wells that were 60 inches long 24 inches wide and 18 inches deep so a whole lot of water being hauled around on the boat i, I think it comes out to about 112 gallons of water uh, sloshing around on their boat uh, wow yeah I, as a bass tournament angler in uh, my undergrad that seems like a very large live well. <laughs> yeah. So I was curious about this because, you know, those blue cats get really, really big. So I was wondering like what, you know, the average live well looks like and how they are able to store that much water uh, on their boats. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so they have a lot of water. So you would think they'd have room for some big fish in there. And a lot of them also are pretty, pretty well equipped. All of them had a recirculating pump and an aerator and those were described as different so the re- recircling pump just moved water around within the tank and the aerator moved pumped fresh water in from the lake and then unbeknownst to me when i sent the survey out one of the catfish trails uh, cat masters i believe they're somewhat nationwide trail they require all of their boats to have a uh, oxygen bottle on the boat to pump in uh, oxygen into the live wells during the tournaments so uh, that was pretty interesting but as far as the, the pumps and oxygen, uh, they don't really do much. They don't add salt. They don't add ice. And um, they don't add commercial additives like a lot of the bass tournament guys do. We also asked uh, just to kind of pick their brains and verify or validate what we had been hearing. Uh, we asked if they had any tournament-specific regulation changes that they would like to see implemented by wildlife and parks. And the most frequent response was uh, that they were interested in uh, length limit exemptions through this bass pass or, or a bass, a thing similar to bass pass. So uh, that was the most frequent response, but it was still less than one third of the responses uh, suggested that. And that question was just to fill in the blank. So it wasn't a multiple choice. Uh, so people weren't coerced towards certain answers based off their availability. It was, it was all their, their original ideas. Gotcha. And so yeah. So then with that information, we, we knew that they had big boxes of water and that their fish were in the live wells for about six hours. Um, we didn't ask them how, what their average length of fish was or anything like that, because uh, we knew as we moved forward with the study that uh, the size of fish that we got was kind of dependent on, on the size of fish we were able to get. Uh, so that was in the summer of 2020. Um, we did the survey and then we also uh, validated a cheap portable blood glucose meter to evaluate stress of blue catfish so we went out electro fishing uh, shocked up a bunch of fish and within five minutes uh, stuck a needle in them drew some blood uh, put it put that blood sample on the test strip of a glucose meter and uh, determined stress that way and then put those fish in a in a live well and chased them around for about 10 minutes with a dip net handle and then measured stress again and we were able to find that the meter was able to detect differences in stress uh, easily and so we were able to move forward with the with the study the next summer and i guess going back the reason we tried to get the samples within five minutes is blood glucose is a delayed response so it's assumed that you have a little bit of window to get an initial value uh, before those stress values start to creep into the sample so right um, and you know, i guess fish physiology and this sort of stuff is starting to get out of my wheelhouse. So uh, I apologize if anybody's listening and uh, screaming into their earbuds or <laughs> screaming at the radio, telling me how wrong I am. But uh, we tried to tried to do our best here with limited knowledge. Yeah. So were you only looking, is it in those reservoirs? Is it 
explicitly blue catfish or did you have some flatheads in the mix too uh, i guess most of the most of the fish that people weigh in are blue catfish uh, every once in a while you'll see a flathead weighed in but uh not too common and I, I guess i don't think we even chalked one up while we were collecting fish for this so it would be interesting to to throw that in there but i guess a little late now <laughs> yeah that's all right um so what did you learn about how some of the different conditions affected uh, the stress response. Was it, was there any one thing or any uh, group of items or conditions that um, caused increased stress or didn't lead to an increase in stress? We looked at flow, uh, live well size, and live well crowding. And the way we did that was the following summer, we built a series of artificial live wells out of uh, plywood, put them on a habitat barge and, and drove to our study site uh, close to where we could get fish. Uh, so when we looked at live well flow, we had six, we had three sets of six live wells, so 18 total. And for the flow component, they're all set up as the, as the same size. Uh, six of them had fresh lake water being pumped in constantly. Six of them had just recirculating water with bilge pumps. Um, they're 500 gallon per hour bilge pumps. So the Fresh lake water was also set up to try to be roughly 500 gallons per hour. And then the third set of six live wells was just left stagnant water. So once it was, uh, once it was filled up, it was just left alone until the end of the day. And so we'd shock up fish, get our blood samples, throw them in these live wells, and we kept them in there for two hours. It just worked better logistically to have them for two hours instead of sit there and watch fish for six hours. And so after two hours, we'd take them out, get another blood sample. And uh, once we looked at all that data, we found that uh, flow really didn't have any impact on the stress levels of blue catfish. They, they all seemed to be, do fine. Um, the, the fish in the, the flowing waters didn't do any better than the fish in the stagnant waters. So flow had no impact on uh, recovery of fish from stress. And then we looked at um, live well size and live well crowding at the same time. So we were able to move the dividers around to change the length of the live well uh, from 48 inches to uh, one live well was 36 inches long and one live well was 60 inches long. So we had uh, half and half of those. And then we mixed up whether we had one fish in a live well or five fish in a live well. So uh, we all had the same the same number of replicates for each one of those. I think it was, came out to about 20 fish per per one. So not a huge sample size, but we were able to find that there wasn't any difference in stress response to live well crowding and no no difference in live well stress to uh, live well size. And I guess it, it was a little surprising that we didn't see any response to, to anything, but at the same time, it, it goes along with uh, what people have found for bass and walleye tournament information so live well variations don't really have much of an impact on on the stress levels of these fish it's a lot of times the fish will return to a, a base uh, stress level or base blood glucose level in the live well uh, kind of recovering from that stressful capture event so right gotcha uh, so did you look at like um dissolved oxygen levels at all i know that like from working with blue catfish up here in maryland it seems that they're they're pretty hardy in terms of some of the conditions that they can handle and how well they survive so uh, i was curious if that would impact um survival in live well at all yeah i'm i'm sure it would we 
uh, <laughs> I guess, forgot to pack the dissolved oxygen meter uh, for any of this. Uh, it was a, after we finished it, I thought, oh, we should have taken dissolved oxygen because everybody has asked us how dissolved oxygen uh, uh, played into it. But um, there was something we forgot to, to measure as we were going. We did have temperature sensors in the live wells during the flow component. Um, but uh, we, didn't, yeah. we didn't measure dissolved oxygen at all. No. Right. Gotcha. I figured, you know, if you have temperature, it's like you may be able to, to look at it that way too. So, yep. Yeah. And uh, so I guess going along with the, the previous bass studies, the, since we didn't find much in live wells, a lot of those bass and walleye studies also go on to say that after that capture event, which is the most stressful uh, portion for a fish, though the live weigh-in is the second most stressful. And, and that was another big component of the catfish tournaments is the weigh-in process. And uh, it's just something we weren't able to wrap our heads around how to how to assess this time uh, or this past time around. But we're hoping to look at that in the future. Um, if not this summer, next summer, look at how catfish catfish handle the live, live weigh-ins and uh, if there's right. ways to improve that. So. Cool. Yeah, that sounds sounds like an awesome study, and it seems like you have um, some also some more questions that you can mm-hmm. hopefully try to get at. Um, yeah. So, are most of those tournaments catch and release? I know that a lot of tournaments over here um, are are typically not catch and release as they're invasive, but I figured within their native range, there it'd be more geared toward catch and release. Yep. Yeah. They're they're almost all catch and I think they are all catch and release based. Um, so they'll they'll haul them around in their boats all day long and then pull their boats up on shore, throw them in a tub, wheel them over the scale. And then once they're weighed and have their pictures taken and all that, they'll put them back in the tubs and cart them down the boat ramp and, and toss them in right at the boat ramp. Um, it's That's not cool. as nice <laughs> as some of those bass tournaments where they have live, live release boats and, and all that. Um, but uh, all the fish go back. And for the most part, uh, we don't get complaints about dead fish. Um, there, there have been a few tournaments where we get complaints from anglers, uh, about the way, the way those tournament operators are handling fish, but, uh, it's, it's the, it's an outlier. Most of them do a good job. Yeah, that's great. So then I I guess kind of going off of that, did you want to talk about another, um, survey opportunity you had for, for Kansas anglers to talk about their experiences with carp fishing? This is my latest version of those special projects that the research guys let us do. And it was, it's probably my most harebrained and uh, eyebrow raising project <laughs> that I've done. Uh, when I first pitched it, it was how to manage for trophy carp. And it was all kind of spurred by uh, a Facebook conversation I had with some anglers. Um, I forgot what the original post was, but we do have a contingent of uh, European style carp anglers in Kansas. And they, they like to uh, follow our Facebook pages and then troll the comments and <laughs> with various various questions about carp management. And one of them um, just asked, when are we going to start managing common carp like trophy largemouth? And it was winter time. And I had some. I was in front of the computer, so I, I bit the bullet and and uh, replied back to him and said, how would how would you manage for trophy carp? And we had a big long conversation and. I guess the, the question, how to manage for trophy carp stuck in my head. And, uh, so this project is, is aimed at figuring out how to manage for trophy carp, its impacts and, 
what impact it would have on sport fish and how feasible it is to actually complete those management actions once we figure it out. And, gotcha. Uh, the, the beginning part of that, it, uh, we rolled it out in, in March as a, as a survey. Uh, we, this time I did include the survey in the original proposal and had our human dimension specialist, uh, help me out with that. So it's, it's a little bit better than the, than the catfish one I did. Um, but we were able to, uh, send the survey to 2000 random Kansas anglers, um, who had bought licenses in the past year. Uh, we mailed a survey postcard to them. That was our random, random base. And then we also posted on social media and there it exploded. Um, so, and I guess before we did any of that, we sent it to the fisheries division to get their opinions and experiences with common carp. So gotcha. I guess, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess for me, I, I can kind of see the appeal when I was young, I really, really loved fishing for carp. I mean, mm-hmm. it was always just like, they fight harder than anything else in the, the local pond. So, I mean, that's what I was going to target. Yeah. Yeah. It's so a, it. I mean, they, they're non-native fish, but they're, they're brought here 150 years ago for, for food fish. Uh, but uh, they're quickly tossed aside and, and lost favor to largemouth bass and, and trout and the more popular sport fish that we still have today. Um, but there is, there is a group of people out there in, in every state and across the country starting to target these fish and, and they're starting to grow in popularity or at least those that small group is starting to get louder about their popularity um and so it's i guess it's a it's a i mean they're they're in our waters um in most cases we aren't going to get rid of them in in all of our waters so why not manage a few select water bodies for them if it's possible and so that was the goal of it and i guess the the survey the reason we sent it to 2000 random anglers was to kind of get a feel for, uh, how many people in Kansas actually fish for these carp. Uh, since, since most of this was spurred on by that vocal group of Facebook anglers, uh, we wanted to figure out how many actually fished for carp in Kansas. Um, if, and so we, with that postcard, we figured out that only 37% of Kansas anglers had ever intentionally fished for common carp Hmm. compared to, uh, the, when we put the survey out on social media, it came back as 66% of Kansas anglers fish for common carp. So there, there is a little bit discrepancy of there. I mean, you, you always hear from the most uh, vocal, most angry people on Facebook, uh, but uh, 30, 37% fish for common carp. And, and of those, I mean, 70 of 70% of them do fish for forum rod and reel, but then 24 of those are bow fishers. So uh, there is a, there is a weird, uh, nice breakdown there it's not all not all rod and reel and bow anglers cool so i guess um is that just common carp you're looking at because i know like in some areas of the country we have grass carp and some of the others that people occasionally will target um usually with bow fishing but you were just kind of concerned about yeah so the survey was was focused just on common carp and uh i guess buffalo is kind of specific to our reservoirs and and so it, it's not as statewide as, as common carp are. I think you could find common carp in just about every county of Kansas there. Uh, I mean, you could almost find them in every county of the United States. They're pretty widespread. Um, but I mean, bow fishermen and the, the carp anglers like to go for buffalo and uh, some of those other uh, non-traditional sport fish. So uh, I guess there is window there 
to uh, open those up as uh, recreational targets, just like common carp are. But, yeah. So were you surprised by some of the results you saw from the survey or was it more what you expected in terms of, you know, how much time people spent fishing for carp and how far they're willing to drive or amount of money they're willing to spend? Yeah. So uh, I guess those questions, I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, we did ask um, how far they were willing to drive and it's usually about two hours, which is it's surprising that uh, people would want to drive that far to target carp. Uh, but, but this was the, the bow fishermen and, and the, uh, specified carp anglers. Right. Uh, so yeah. it wasn't the, um, overall, it wasn't the, the general population. And on average, they fish about five hours. Um, the days per year, I haven't cleaned up all the data yet, so it's a little wonky, but, uh, looking at Qualtrics where we did the survey, it said the mean days fish per year was 300 uh, for both bow fishermen and the carp angler. So I think there's a, I think there needs to be some data cleaning going on there. I wish uh, I could fish 300 days a year. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, I, I tried to fish 50 days a year and, and that even proved challenging. Uh, so yeah. 300 yeah. would be very impressive. <laughs> uh, but, and then you start to get some uh, differences between the bow fishermen and the carp anglers, uh, off, on how many fish they catch per outing. So the, the bow fishermen, they get 47 fish every time they go out uh, or they claim they get 47 fish. And then the anglers just see about eight fish. Both of them are about 20, 21, 22 inches long. Um, and then they both rate their success as uh, average. So that they aren't uh, thinking they're just killing it, having above average success They're They both think they're doing an average job. Right. As far as the fate of those fish, that's another spot where the differences come in that the bow fishermen tend to use theirs as bait or compost or put it in their garden or just disposed of. Whereas most of the, the angled fish get released. 61% of those get released. So, uh, as you could imagine, uh, somebody targeting fish rod and reel, uh, like those European style carp anglers, they tend to release their fish so they can, if you get into the real specifics of it, they have, a They'll even begin to recognize fish by scale patterns and target specific fish (laughs) when they go out. So uh, it's not hard to believe that they're releasing all their fish. Yeah, it's interesting. I I know in the UK, that's a really, really really big thing. And they care a lot about um, just catch and release uh, in the conditions and stuff like that. I always see the pictures where they have like the the measuring slings and like in the water with Mm -hmm. them. So it's cool to see like that they're that passionate about it. And I guess some of that is starting to kind of transfer over to certain parts of the US too. So um so i guess it may be a bit of a loaded question here but i guess based off of the survey and um kind of carp in the state of kansas what does the the future of carp fishing and and potentially management look like yeah so that that was uh, another goal of the survey was to figure out um i guess first what size people think uh a trophy carp is and then uh, we also asked the question what management actions need to be taken to reach trophy carp or to grow trophy carp and so for the most part, uh, they think a trophy carp is about 33 inches long and about 25 to 30 pounds. So uh, a big fish. Um, and they only need to see uh, five, two to five of those fish per outing to be successful. Um, as far as management actions, uh, that, that varied depending on uh, if you're a bow fisherman or uh, uh, an angler. Uh, bow fishermen, 
their number one answer was mass removal of fish. So they, they thought the, the best way to trophy carp is mass removal. And that kind of follows along uh, what most of the listeners uh, management training has said is you need to thin out some of those fish. So they're able to grow bigger into bigger sizes. Uh, but the anglers yeah. for our postcard, they said mass removal, but then the social, ang- the social media survey people, uh, those were more of the diehard rod and reel carp anglers. And they said, maximum length limits, gear restrictions, and stocking of common carp. So the opposite of what the bow fishermen are saying with mass removal is the, <laughs> the anglers want more fish stocked. Uh, and a max maximum length limit is, uh, is another thing that I had thought was, would be the way to go with a mass thinning of those smaller fish and then putting a maximum length limit on to, to protect those fish once they get to a bigger size. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, maybe some conflicting uh, opinions there on, on how to get to the, to the goal of it. Um, mm-hmm. yep. And so the, another big part of the study was the feasibility, um, uh, of how likely these management actions are. I mean, we can put any regulation out that we want, uh, but is it going to be practiced by the anglers? And so we threw a survey on there or a question into the survey. Um, so for the question, what management actions, uh, would, would an agency need to take to grow a trophy carp? It was multiple choice and it had, uh, minimum, maximum, uh, two different slot limits on there. And so if an angler, if a person taking the survey selected one of those length limits as a management action, their next question would be, if length limits were put in place, would you harvest a fish that was legal to keep? So basically, yeah. would they would they go along with these length limits? And and that is probably the most surprising answer uh, answer that I've seen in the survey. Uh, it's, it's pretty, it's not even close how many people would not harvest illegal fish, even though they said that length limits was the way to, to grow these trophy fish, um, for the, for the carp anglers, uh, it was 80% no to 20% yes, that they would harvest the fish. So, Hmm. uh, they say they want these length limits in place to protect their fish, but they aren't, I guess they aren't, we need to do more to educate educate the public on on what length limits actually do and how they work Uh, yeah yeah i know that's that's i'm I'm sure probably pretty common across the u.s with with largemouth bass fisheries as well like Mm -hmm. you know we we have these regulations set in place to harvest some of the smaller individuals to hopefully grow make some more room for the big ones and a lot of people just are practicing entirely catch and release i know there's even some agencies are actually going out and removing some of the smaller individuals so um yeah, it's like you can set all the limits you want, but if they're not actually being harvested, then <laughs> possibly not doing what it's intended to. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So I just started really digging into some of the survey results. It's still somewhat live. We have a few responses trickling in here and there. So, um, but we're up to almost a thousand responses and a lot of it was kind of blown up, uh, especially when we put it on social media, the, the carp anglers the Kansas ones that follow our page shared it with their nationwide American carp society group, uh, which then put it out in their email group. And, and so it, it kind of blew up nationwide. And, uh, some, some of those, uh, responses after the postcard responses that we got are kind of inflated by carp anglers yeah, in, in yeah. non-Kansas too, but, uh, we'll be able to clean up the data set and, and get Kansas zip codes, uh, out of it and, and look at, uh, look at and i guess i'm I'm really interested in, in looking and in, digging into it um my first real foray into 
a survey of, of this magnitude. And I think a lot of the questions and the responses are, are pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great. It's cool to see maybe um, an understudied fish like that, or as people like to say the term rough fish, right. Being mm -hmm. kind of, kind of looked at, which I don't know if I always agree with that term or its implications, but um, yeah, it, it's cool to see that there's some work being done out there. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and this will be able to take some of the, the answers from that survey. And uh, so we'll know how big people think a trophy carp is and look through our sampling information and say, well, we have this size of fish and these impoundments uh, point them towards that. Uh, but another part of the study is um, just started this month uh, going out and collecting a whole bunch of information from fish to try to get, uh, try to build a food web model uh, of a couple impoundments in Kansas um, that then we can model these different management scenarios and and see how those fish populations react to trophy carp management actions so yeah uh, just started collecting data for that yesterday so okay cool that'll, that'll be <laughs> yeah. fun that, that's another fun part to dig into this winter so. yeah i was gonna say we'll have to talk next year once you have everything uh, all done with that model mm -hmm. and fleshed out with the survey results and everything yeah yeah i guess i'll be around i'll probably be hosting uh so I'll gladly switch chairs with somebody to, to answer some more questions about it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to talk about another project that you have going on or that you have, I guess, completed at this point, looking at uh, jug lines uh, being used for blue catfish? Yeah, this was, this uh, was just kind of a side project that uh, I used to, to pass the time in the summer months when I first started. Uh, right after I started, there was another biologist that was running float lines uh, to sample blue catfish uh, out in western Kansas and, and I thought that sounded like a lot of fun and um, he was doing it as a way to sample a uh, kind of sparse population of blue catfish he wasn't having much luck uh, electrofishing for him using low frequency electrofishing uh, he had issues with salinity and also is a pretty small population so he was having trouble shocking and I was also having difficulty finding fish with electrofishing um, just due to a small population size. And so uh, I was able to buy all the stuff I needed to, to build jug lines uh, and started setting out uh, jugs uh, basically whenever I had time in the summer and kind of playing with the gear and figuring out uh, where to set them on my lake and then uh, how to mess with the design of these jug lines to, uh, to better sample uh, blue catfish. So, so I guess like to stop there for anyone that's not familiar um, what like basically what is a jug line and, and how does it function yeah i guess if you're if you're true to the name it has you have a gallon jug uh with twine tied to it going down to a weight uh i guess you don't have to have the weight uh you could just have a, a line going down to a hook with bait on it uh tied to that jug um ours are a little bit more uh scientific looking we have the orange bullet floats um with braided rope, solid braid rope going down. Uh, we have 50 feet of rope on each one going down to a solo cup worth of concrete as our weight. Uh, then I built mine with uh, swivels every 10 feet so I could move the hook up and down depending on the depth that I was setting at. Um, and so we, we, we tried to move the, the hooks around based off of depth and that also improves our uh, or reduces our mortality of fish. So if we're setting all of our hooks on the bottom, uh, 
So five foot above the bottom. We were seeing that if we get out in deeper water, we're getting a lot more mortality. I mean, we have a deep enough reservoir that we stratify in the summer months. We don't have much flow through in the summer. Uh, so we stratify. And if we're set these bottom sets, oh, we start to see a bunch of fish die off. So we, we move those hooks up as we get deeper in the water to keep the fish above the thermocline. Right. Um, and so we, we drastically reduce mortality doing that. Um, and then the next thing uh, we messed with was, was bait. So once we figured out where to, where to put the hook on the line as we were setting it out, uh, we wanted to figure out bait. And this was kind of spurred by uh, another one of our past guests, Renee Martin, was a seasonal of mine for a summer. And we were running these jug lines and we were starting to kind of, kind of pick up that we were catching more fish on a certain body type um, of shad. Uh, so head, midsection, and tails. And so we thought, well, let's, uh, let's do a small project with this and, and look at it. And so we, we put colored beads on the, on the snap swivels as we we're going out. So we could keep track of what bait was what, and um, we ran the shad head, body and tails. And then we also had carp sides uh, thrown in there. And overall, we, we didn't find that there was any difference in catch rate or size of fish that were caught on the different shad sides uh, or carp even. Um, but we did, we did notice that carp stayed on a whole lot better than shad. So uh, we settled on using carp for moving forward in the future. It, it's also a little bit uh, easier to get. You can you can go to almost any impoundment and shock up a, a boatload of carp and, and fly them out and cut them into squares and, and freeze it and you'll have enough bait for all summer long. Uh, where the shad, you, you almost need it fresh because if you freeze shad, it's, it's almost just like mashed potatoes on a hook. It, it doesn't stay on very well at all. Yeah, I've kind of learned that. So I'm using trot lines a little bit um, for my research here. And I kind of learned the same thing. The shad, they're really great fresh and they're really smelly. <laughs> but, you know, kind of freezing them and thawing them is they don't do so well. So mm-hmm. I'll have to look into using carp. Yeah, yeah, the uh, real oily meat. So it, it works good for uh, for the for catching catfish. Um, at least the we found that there wasn't any difference in catch and effort between between the shad and the carp. And then the following summer, uh, I guess the first time we used carp, we were just kind of flaying it out and cut it into cubes based off of what the fillet size was. And, and then the second summer with uh, me and another seasonal um, thought, well, let's let's uh, do a little bit more science stuff on this and, and figure out if there's a difference in, in catch rates by bait size. So we had, it wasn't a drastic difference, uh, but we had a two by two, a two inch by two inch piece of cut carp and a two inch by four inch piece of cut carp. And so we looked at uh, catch rates of that and found that there was no real difference in catch rates. The smaller chunks did catch more fish, but it wasn't a significant difference or anything. Um, the bigger piece of bait did catch a, uh, I mean, they caught roughly the same same uh size range of fish but the bigger bait tended to catch bigger fish more frequently so uh but it wasn't that also wasn't a significant difference uh so we we ultimately settled on uh you get an equal amount of bang for your buck using the small bait plus you get twice as much bait out of a fish uh using the two by two pieces compared to the two by four right yeah that makes sense well that's cool so yeah maybe you can save bait a little bit by not having to worry about explicitly using those larger size baits for larger fish yep yeah and yeah it's just a it's a fun sampling method 
Um, you go out and we said a hundred jugs out, uh, kind of a, I guess, uh, the audience doesn't know what our sampling grids are in Kansas are, but, uh, we have a thousand by thousand meter sampling grids on all of our reservoirs. And so we set 10, 10 float lines in that, in that grid, um, kind of following Creek channels and stuff. And it's fun going back the next day and pulling them because, uh, you'll notice that some are kind of not where you set them and, and you know, a fish drug them over there. <laughs> and then a lot of the times as you get closer with the boat, uh, you'll know you'll have a big fish on cause they'll start pulling those orange bullet floats under the water and start swimming away from the boat as you approach. Uh, and those are always fun, exciting ones to, to yeah. pull in. Uh, you ever but, lose any, um, jug lines at all just from big fish or, uh, knock on wood. I have not lost any. Uh, there's been a few that we, we kind of say, oh, well, we'll, we'll come back and, and look for that later in the day. And then we'll end up finding it, uh, finding it somewhere else in our sets. So I mark each one of the jugs that go out on the GPS. So we have a pretty general idea of, of, of where they are, uh, or where they were. And then, uh, thankfully in the summer months, the, the wind tends to die down in Kansas. So it, when we're pulling these in the morning, it's, it's usually a pretty uh, glassy scenario and we're, we're able to see pretty far across the lake and these orange bullet floats come up um, are pretty easy to spot across the lake. Um, so we're, yeah. we're able to find them pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, but other guys uh, have lost some on uh, uh, some other lakes in Kansas, uh, Melbourne. And we, uh, we couldn't find one of them one day. Uh, the wind was going to pick up, so we didn't reset came back two days later to set again and uh we're sit- standing at the boat ramp and somebody said hey what what's that across the lake there it looks like one of our floats uh so a fish must have got tangled up in a brush pile freed itself and then that buoy popped back up <laughs> uh fish was still on it two days later so uh <laughs> yeah that's crazy that's but, something i always worry about here with trot lines is like with the heavy tide running it's like I always think, you know, and I said it, it's like, is it going to be here when I come back? And uh, knock on wood, it hasn't happened yet uh, that I've lost it. But yep, yeah, and there, there's still a lot more stuff that uh, we we kind of have on the have on the table to play with when we have the time. Uh, Juglines has taken a little bit of a backseat with some of these other summer projects that we have going on in Kansas, but um, I, I still have jotted down to, to look at hook size currently we're running 10 knot must add circle hooks and uh, a lot of the smaller blues that we see i mean have a hook going right through the eye or close to the eye when when we land them so yeah um, seeing if if we drop yeah. to a smaller hook size if that affects catch rates or size size of fish that we catch and uh it, it another thing was uh it's easy to go out and get frozen or get a whole bunch of carp cut it up and freeze it but would we have better catch rates if we had fresh bait um, yeah that's a good point i always wondered that i mean i know that some catfish anglers are pretty specific about their bait being mm-hmm. perfectly fresh and i can see i mean i'm curious what you would find doing that yeah yeah it's just stuff uh fun stuff to play around with in the summer months when uh, yeah when, when we aren't shocking for blues so yeah nice way to pass the time on nice cool summer mornings right yeah that's awesome i'll definitely be doing uh, a lot of that myself this summer so looking forward to hopefully getting my hands on some big blues it's cool that they allow you to do some of those smaller research projects kind of on your own um that, that's really neat that they're supporting that yeah yeah it's a uh, uh i'm almost a little sad I've, I've 
told my supervisor that I was going to take a break from doing these projects while I get acquainted with the, with the new role I have as the regional habitat coordinator. But, um, I guess hopefully I'll be able to return to it. Uh, I guess, the the, the break will give me some time to formulate some new ideas of, of what to, what to look into. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. Nice. Well, I guess we've we've already heard probably at some point on this podcast, I'm sure, your final five answers. So I didn't know if you wanted to go over those at all. <laughs> well, uh, it's paddlefish. It's my favorite fish. Anybody could guess that. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, has it changed at all? No. <laughs> nope. Uh, no, paddlefish is my favorite fish. Um, I guess favorite memory is it's probably just still working the fun times uh, shared with all the, all the different colleagues. Uh, not so much the sampling fish, but kind of the interactions in between the in in between the samples is that's always my favorite memory. Um, the, a handful of those get pulled into that. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing like that lunch break out on the boat, you know, in between sampling. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been a while. I've forgotten the que- my own questions. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you want to go through them, I guess I can pull them up here. Let's see. Uh, dream job i don't know if that's one uh that has changed at all within the last however long it's been since you answered these uh no i i, I think i'm still in my dream job I, yeah there uh, you go I, I told him told him when i interviewed that it's, uh close enough to my family to keep me happy but far enough away to keep me sane that they have to <laughs> it's almost a, a weekend trip for anybody to come visit us so uh people aren't dropping in unannounced and uh but as we talked about on the podcast the Kansas has given me the freedom to do a variety of things, uh, research projects on top of my management tasks. I'm able to travel to meetings. Um, I was able to start a podcast and I'm able to post on agency Facebook pages. So uh, they're, they've been pretty, pretty open to, to let me do pretty much whatever I want. So I'm yeah. pretty happy here. That's great. Yeah. It sounds like a kind of an ideal scenario, really. I'm mm-hmm. So I guess kind of going off of these individual sort of smaller research projects that you've been doing, um, if so if money was not an issue, um, what is one project you'd like to work on? And I guess we could tie that back to those particular projects there, but um, I'll leave it up to you. Oh, I guess hmm. <laughs> this one is always the, the trickiest one for me. And uh, so many people seem to come prepared to the podcast with such, such amazing answers to this question. Uh, but uh, for me, I, I really like, gear evaluation type stuff um i don't think we should ever just settle in and stick with the gear just because it's a uh, the way we've done it before we should always be looking to improve and and modify our gears to improve our catches and reduce our bias so uh, just playing around with with all the popular gears that uh, state agency folk use and and determining if there's a, a better a better way to do it um that would be my my dream project or yeah it's not the most exciting of projects, but uh, it's the one that could, came to the top of my head. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Cool. So then I guess kind of one last point or principle that you'd leave our listeners with. I know you probably had a couple of good ones so far, but anything new come to mind here? I guess the one that, that always, uh, I think I always use for, for this question is is to share your story. Um, one of the reasons I started the Fisheries Podcast was uh because I was tired of being confused for a game warden. I, I would go somewhere for a, a fishing clinic and somebody would ask it, ask me if I'm a game warden or ask where my gun is. And I'd say, no, I'm a fisheries biologist. I, I don't write tickets. Uh, so uh, just sharing your story, letting people know that what, what you do and why you do it. Um, and I'm, I'm not the best. I don't listen to my own advice at sometimes I, I don't, 
do the best job at communicating as I should uh, in this role or uh, since this is my message. But uh, I guess it's just a good point for for myself and everybody to just to share your story and uh, continue to spread why why fisheries is so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's really important for everyone in this field to always keep in mind is that everyone's story is so different. So sharing your experiences, like people are interested in hearing about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would encourage the same thing with that. I kind of, I guess we'll stop there. So thanks again for coming on the show and it was good to catch up and I'm sure you were kind of glad to be back on kind of like in the back in the saddle, like you said, on, on the podcast. So yeah, yeah, it, it's a uh, good to, good to be back. Um, and I, we kind of mentioned it briefly at the beginning, but uh, you and I are going to begin alternating uh, those monthly episodes. You, uh, I stepped away because I was too busy and uh, same way with you, you, but you're generous enough not to completely step away. Step <laughs> away. So uh, we're going to alternate those monthly slots that you have. And uh, so uh, it will yeah, give me a so chance a little... to ease back into the podcast and, and give you a little bit of a break. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Grad school is uh, definitely not easy <laughs> that's mm-hmm. what i'm learning but everything's going really well but yeah like you said it's just been a bit crazy with uh with everything so i am really looking forward though to still staying on and like like you said having a month or an episode every other month and and staying involved with things as much as i can and helping people to get their story out because like you said it, it is important and i really really do enjoy talking to so many people that come from so many different backgrounds about their experiences in fisheries so Mm-hmm. hopefully you're kind of okay with stepping back on i don't want to overburden you with, with your roles there it seems, no. seems like you got a lot going on but... I, I think i think i can handle it so <laughs> great so i guess lastly last question um if people would like to get a hold of you is the best way to be uh is the best way to do that going to be going through the fisheries podcast or did you have another form of contact you'd like to give out people can always contact me through i guess any of the the, the the podcast social media on um, facebook twitter or instagram uh the fisheries podcast or at fisheries pod um you can also reach me nick.kramer at uh the fisheries podcast.com or nick.kramer at ks.gov so uh pretty easy to get a hold of and i usually try to reply pretty quickly great yeah and the same goes for me i can always be reached on those forms of the fisheries podcast social media um, if you'd like to reach me at my personal email address, it's going to be zscrum at salisbury.edu. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or the fisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help the, support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 173rd episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember the importance of sharing your story in fisheries with the world. 